which points back to what was just said prior, verse 25, where Paul said this, For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. God's foolishness is greater than man's wisdom, and God, even in his weakness, so perceived, is greater or stronger than man's strength. And then in verse 20, what he does, excuse me, verse 26, he's giving an illustrative example. Let me show you. For, consider your calling. So as an example, think about your calling. Think about the makeup of the church. Not many of you were wise in the eyes of the world. Not many were powerful people at the top of society. Most people that God calls to himself are on the lower rungs of society, people that are disregarded or regarded as less than others. Now, this doesn't exclude the wise or the powerful or those of noble birth. There was a uh, lady, some of you may have heard of her, the Countess of Huntington. She was a very wealthy and influential participant in the Methodist revival under George, we excuse me, John Wesley. John Wesley and George Whitfield. Uh, she used her wealth to help s support their, their gospel work. And because of what the phrasing in verse 26, she used to say, uh, let's see, I better read it so I don't get it wrong. She used to say, <clears throat> oh, she used to say that she owed her salvation to the letter M. Because verse 26 does not say, not any of you were powerful, not any of you were of noble birth. It said, not many. And so she thanked God for that M that still was saying, God does not exclude those who are of noble birth and who are powerful. Fellowship Bible Church uh, would be considered a middle class to upper middle class church. So, so we, if you looked at us as a whole in society, we tend to be middle to maybe a little bit above. So, so many of us here in Fellowship Bible Church are considered by the world to be wise or powerful or influential people. But that's not what most of us are. Many of us would be considered the bottom rung of society. Many of us would be considered undesirables. And when you think about the church worldwide or you think about the church down through history, that verse makes even more sense because you look at the makeup worldwide and the vast majority of people who are believers are people who are poor, people who are marginalized, people who are unwanted, people who have been pushed out of high society. From a non-religious perspective, the church consists of the bottom of the barrel in society. So one reason not to boast in ourselves is that most believers aren't naturally impressive or great. <clears throat> and a second reason not to boast is that God uses those people, the unimpressive people uses those people to show his greatness. Verses 27 and 28, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are. God calls unimpressive people in order to more beautifully display his greatness through them. So first, Paul points out that the type of people that aren't usually called to be part of his church are wise, powerful, nobility. Then he describes the type of people that are usually called. These are people that the world would consider unwise, fools, the weak, the low and the despised. And this phrase, even things that are not, basically what he's saying is God chooses nobodies in society to be part of his church. People who aren't even regarded by those in the upper levels of society. 
And his choice of the foolish, weak, and low, and despised shames the wise, strong, and important people because he shows that those things mean nothing in his economy. They stand for nothing in his kingdom. God cares nothing about the size of your bank account or the amount of your education, how powerful, noble, well thought of, or famous you are. And he displays that by choosing people that have none of those things and then working through them to display his glory. God picks the low members of society to be his ambassadors to shame the upper crust so that he will get the glory for what's accomplished through his church. Now think for just a second about, this is an example of what we would call the foolishness of God from a human perspective. Think for a second if you were given the charge by God, okay, I want you to put together an organization and I want you to have that organization spread my message around the world. I want it to influence every society on earth. Who would you go out and recruit? You would recruit the upper crust. You'd recruit the the movers and the shakers, the cool people, the wealthy people, the powerful people, because they're going to get it done. But God went exactly opposite, and he chose the bottom of the barrel to show that it is purely his power and strength and wisdom that accomplishes what he wants to through his church. One other thing I want to mention is that three times in verse 27... Excuse me, three times in verse 27 and 28, it says, God chose. God chose. It's another reminder that God is the initiator of our salvation, that God is the sovereign who is in control even of the membership of his church. Honestly, when I was reading this, it made me want to explore and exult in the great doctrine of election, but that would be a little bit of a sideline, so I'm not going to do that this morning. I do just want to mention that the composition of the church of Jesus Christ is God's design, not man's. Because if it were our design, it would be completely different, right? Give me Justin Bieber. Bieber, I can't even say his name. Give me Justin Bieber. Give me Kanye West. Give me, you know, Elon Musk. Give me the, the powerful, the strong. That's what we want. And God says, no, give me the weak. Give me the foolish. Give me the people that are despised. Give me the undesirables of society because that's how I'm going to show my glory and bring to shame what is valued in man's eyes. And think for a second about how God's choice of these unimpressive people does display his glory, because when something great is accomplished by a bunch of wealthy, powerful people, it's no surprise. Even from a secular standpoint, you'd go, yeah, I'm I'm not surprised that they were able to do this. Uh, Think about Apple. When Apple comes out with a new cool product, they have billions of dollars of resources. They have the cream of the crop, the smartest people on earth working on this stuff. So when they come out with it, we may be impressed with the device, but we're not surprised if they came out with something impressive. But if you collected a bunch of no-account knuckleheads and sat down and said, hey, let's come up with a great idea and something came out of it, you would be shocked, you'd be impressed. Where on earth did you guys come up with this? It reminds me of the reaction of many of the religious leaders during the, uh, the time of Jesus was walking the earth or just after, excuse me, when his apostles were spreading the gospel and they were like, where, where did these men get this wisdom? These, these are unlearned men. These, these people are ignorant. This is the bottom of society. How is it that they have this insight into ultimate reality? So that's how, one of the ways that God uses to get glory. He chose the foolish, the weak, the low, the despised, the nobodies. Because that would remove human boasting and human pride and give all the glory to him. So if you are a believer, 
and you are disregarded by society, you are at the lower rung of society, then rejoice today knowing that God chose you to display his glory, to show the world that he is great and awesome, regardless of who he chooses. And if you are one of the upper crust, influential and strong people, you can also rejoice that it is not any of those credentials, anything that you have done or possess that causes success of the gospel, that causes the growth of the church. It is purely the power and strength of Almighty God. The final reason he gives in these verses, not to boast in ourselves, is that God does this. God chooses these unimpressive people and works through these unimpressive people in order to take away our grounds for boasting. He says that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Our accomplishments, our standing in society, our intelligence give us no advantage before God. They count for absolutely nothing. You'll remember the Apostle Paul, he was one of those that was called, it was the upper crust. He was a guy that was highly respected. He was rising in the ranks of Judaism. This is a guy that people look to and say, yes, this man's brilliant. He's educated. He's talented. He's gifted. And Paul said, when I came to know Christ, I counted all that as nothing because none of that gave me any standing with God. It was purely the grace and mercy of God. By doing it the way that he does it, the Lord removes any basis we have for boasting in ourselves. One example that came to my mind for how this works for both those, those in the church that are on the lower end of society and those that are on the upper end of society, uh, I do want to say, first of all, I'm going to use myself as an example and May God spare me. I hope this isn't boasting. I'm not going to try to make it boasting in any way, okay? But uh, I was going to think about the contrast between myself and my dad. My dad dropped out of high school. He got his GED in the Navy. And all of his life, he worked in blue-collar jobs. I, on the other hand, uh, got a degree from Laterno University. See, I, I like that. See, we don't A&M. We don't have that whoop-whoop thing. Uh, I got this... <laughs> I would say we're humble, but as soon as I say that, it takes it away, right? Uh, so I got a degree in engineering from Laterno University. I later was able to get a, a master's degree in religion. And uh, for most of my working career, I've worked white-collar jobs, you know, that are considered a step up. So, so looking at the two of us, you might say, okay, you know, Ken Reinhardt is kind of on the lower end of society, and Slade Reinhardt is on the upper end of society. But God called both of us to be part of his kingdom. So that is a blessing to my father to say, yeah, I had nothing to bring to him, and God called me to him. And it's a blessing to me, to humble me, to say, you know what? Those degrees, this white-collar position, whatever earnings I have, it counted for nothing. It means nothing in God's sight. I'm purely accepted by the grace and mercy of God. Our greatest assets in the world's eyes contribute nothing to our salvation or our standing before God. That means that any boasting in ourselves, any bragging on our strengths or abilities is worthless, empty, and foolish, and in fact stands in opposition to the glory of God. The power and wisdom and greatness of the church has nothing to do with the people that compose it. It has everything to do with our head, Jesus Christ. He is the one who gives the power and the wisdom and the greatness. And that means that we as a church should not boast in ourselves. I've been guilty of this probably a hundred times. You ever done this? You find yourself talking to somebody that you know and they go to another church and you kind of feel the need to let them know yours is probably a little bit better than theirs, you know? Well, let me tell you what our church does. 
<clears throat> Even in that case, we should be humble and recognize that it is purely because of the grace and mercy of God. Fellowship Bible Church, one of our, our core values is uh, teaching the Word of God, holding fast to the Word of God. And that is something we praise God for because that is not due to the effort of any man. So for me to go around saying, yeah, well, I'll tell you about our church. We're faithful to God's word. That would be boasting. If instead I said, by God's grace, we as a, we as a congregation have been faithful to God's word. We are committed to God's word. Then that's giving him the credit for it because we deserve absolutely none of it. In fact, as we're reevaluating the life and ministry of the church, uh, these uh, focus groups and, and study, study groups, as we're resetting our feet to move forward, I pray, God, that we do remember that always, that we are totally dependent on the grace and mercy of our God. We accomplish nothing on our own. Jesus himself said it to his disciples, without me, you can do nothing. You can't do any spiritual good apart from God's power. So we have nothing to boast about. And instead of boasting in ourselves, Paul says we should boast in the Lord. Boasting in ourselves is, is right out, as the British say. But the Lord does want us to boast. He does want us to brag. He does want us to trumpet somebody, and that's himself. He wants us to boast in him. And there are 10,000 times 10,000 reasons to brag on God and to boast for how magnificent he is. But the Spirit just gives us three here in verses 30 to 31 to make the point. For one thing, we should boast in the Lord because we are united to Christ because of God and not ourselves. Verse 30 says, and because of him, speaking of God the Father, and because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. Paul is saying that God and only God is the cause of our union with Christ. You are united to him. You are part of the body of Christ. You are adopted into the family of God because of God. You and I did not accomplish that. Salvation is the work of the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. 1 Peter 1 says that the Father caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Ephesians 2, of course, says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that is not your own doing. That is not of yourself. It is the gift of God. Even your faith in God is a gift from God. You can't take credit for any of it. You can only boast in the Lord and give him grace. Scripture is, excuse me, give him praise. Scripture is saturated with the truth that man cannot save himself. He is totally dependent on the initiative and grace and mercy of God. So, Paul says, boast in him because he has rescued you from slavery to sin, because he has delivered you from the kingdom of darkness, because he has adopted you into his family in union with the only begotten Son, Jesus Christ. We should boast in the Lord because the ground of, and cause of our salvation, of our being in Christ, is because of him. Secondly, we should boast in the Lord because Christ became everything we need. There's an old song that says, He is all I need, He is all I need, Jesus is all I need. I did, I did really consider singing it, but I shall not. I shall not. I shall leave that to the music team. Look again at verse 30. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. There are four things, <clears throat> excuse me, there are four things that the Spirit says that Jesus became to us. He mentions wisdom, 
righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. And the construction of this verse in Greek, and as a matter of fact, the construction even in the, in the English versions, they do a good job of showing this. Wisdom is kind of separate from these other three. So it's Christ became to us wisdom, and then he throws in these, these other three, three things as if to say that these other three things are the fruit or the result of the wisdom of God in Christ. Uh, righteousness and sanctification and redemption are the product of God's wisdom in Christ. So you might wonder, <clears throat> you might wonder why did Paul start with wisdom instead of righteousness? Because I thought our greatest need was righteousness. So why does Paul start with wisdom? Well, the reason is because of the audience in this case. So he's writing to people in Corinth who value human wisdom above everything. They place so much trust in the wisdom of man. And so Paul is striking at that by saying, look, Jesus became the wisdom from God to us, and that is much more important and greater than the wisdom of man. In the book of Romans, of course, he does start with righteousness because the Jews, what do they hold on to? Self-righteousness. And the Corinthians are holding on to self-wisdom, so he's using his, the, the truth of God to, to attack the particular sin that the Corinthians were subject to. So Paul was led by the Spirit to emphasize God's wisdom over man's wisdom because, again, he's, he's counteracting uh, this, this uh, tendency toward pride and toward boasting. Uh, before I get into the... I'm gonna, I want to talk about each of those four words that he mentioned, those four things that, that Christ became to us or that we possess because we're in Christ. But before I do that, I do want to face an issue that may be in some of your minds. I know it's cropped up in mine from time to time. You know, I said at the beginning... Jesus became everything we need, beginning of this section, and then that song I quoted, He is all I need, He's all I need, Jesus is all I need. Is that true? Is Jesus all we need? Is Jesus everything we need? You may be thinking, He isn't all I need. I need food, I need water, I need clothes, I need housing. Maybe you're a single parent and you're like, you know what, I have Jesus but Jesus doesn't physically come down here and pick up my kids from school so that I don't have to take off from work. Or you may be unemployed and you think, yes, I have Jesus, but Jesus isn't magically depositing money in my bank account each month so I can cover my bills. Or you may be thinking, I have Jesus, but I am suffering deeply with cancer and it's not solving that problem. I need healing. I need medicine. Is Jesus all we need? Well, yes. Yes, he is. Let me uh, say definitively and absolutely, Jesus is all we need and everything we need. When you put your faith in him, he becomes to you everything that you need for life and godliness. But it doesn't mean that he takes away all your difficulties. It doesn't mean that he takes away all your trials or your suffering. It doesn't mean that he takes away all of your problems in this life. In the next life, yes, all of that is going to be gone, but not in this life. As a matter of fact, Jesus guarantees that we will suffer. In this world, you will have tribulation. All who will live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. That is part of what we're going to experience these days. But in Jesus, you do have everything you need because if you have him, he is going to provide those other things that you need as he wisely chooses. If you're that single parent who needs help with your kid's transportation, 
Jesus has provided the body of Christ to stand with you, to walk with you, and help share those burdens. If you're that unemployed person desperate to pay your bills, Jesus has provided the body of Christ to stand with you, to walk with you, and to help carry your burdens. And I know some of you may be thinking this. I know 100% the church fails at that. Remember, the church is filled with sinful people, so yes, we do fail at that. But part of the reason that God has given us a body is for that purpose, so that when somebody is down, there is someone there to help lift them up and walk through what they're facing. And by the way, if you are in any of those needs, if you have any physical needs, if you have any uh, troubles that you think that the church could help you with, that the church could help you with, uh, please don't hesitate to contact the church office and let us know. All right, so let's look at these four things that Christ became to us. First of all, he became to us wisdom from God. Paul's been emphatic that, that the wisdom of man is absolutely worthless when it comes to solving spiritual problems or when it comes to man's need for salvation. Instead, what we need is God's wisdom, and he has given us that in Christ. Christ is the image of the invisible God, the exact imprint of his nature. He perfectly reveals God and therefore gives us wisdom from above, leading to understanding and ultimate, excuse me, understanding about ultimate reality. In, the, in his life, teaching, atoning death and resurrection, Jesus was the manifestation of God's wisdom, the revealing of the ancient plan of salvation. One author described Jesus as the wisdom of God this way. He reveals to us God, his nature and his will, his purpose and plan of grace. And in union with Christ, we become truly wise. In him, we have the key which opens all mysteries. We learn to know God and to know ourselves. And in him, the broken fellowship between God and man is restored. For centuries, philosophers have delved into the deepest, most important questions of life. Why are we here? What are we supposed to be about where are we going? And in Christ, those great massive questions are answered. In Christ, the wisdom of God addresses all of that, our origin, our destiny, and how we should live day to day. In fact, not only does he answer those big questions, but he does address that day-to-day, everyday kind of stuff. For example, let's suppose that uh, you bought something from a, st- from a store. We'll say clothes. You bought some clothes from the store, you get home, you try them on again, you still look awesome. So then you, you wash them because you don't want that new clothes smell. And uh, then when you put them on, they've shrunk. Now they don't fit. You look like a dork. Pants waiting up high. So then you take it back to the store and you're like, okay, these, I wash these things. They don't fit anymore. I want a full refund. And the salesperson says, well, if you've washed them, it's our policy. We don't give any refund. Now in that moment, you have two options for how to proceed. You can use the wisdom of man or you can use the wisdom of God. The wisdom of man would say what? Man, if you just get loud and you cause a big scene and you really berate this salesperson, they'll probably buckle under and give you what you want. But the wisdom of God that is revealed to us in Christ would say, even this person that is frustrating me, this representative of this company, I am still going to love them as my neighbor. I'm still going to treat them with kindness and patience. And I may not get what I want in the moment, but I will glorify God and trust that he is going to provide what I need, even if I end up not being able to use these clothes. Christ is the wisdom of God for us. Now let's look at this term called righteousness. 
John Calvin commented that this means that Christ became our righteousness, that this means that we are on his account acceptable to God inasmuch as he expiated our sin by his death and his obedience is imputed to us for righteousness. Since Jesus is righteousness to everyone who believes in him, we can live with confidence that we are accepted and favored by God the Father through the ups and downs of your spiritual life. So you are just as accepted by God on that day when you did awesome at obeying him as on that day when you did explode at the sales lady at the store and lost your patience and made a big scene and showed that person man's wisdom instead of God's wisdom. In Christ you are still righteous because it is his righteousness that is given to you. So when the devil throws your sin in your face and tells you that you are unworthy to be part of the church, how can you call yourself a Christian? Look what you just did. Or when he throws your sin in your faith and tells you you are unworthy to pray to God or to give him praise, how can you approach your heavenly father? Look what you just did. You can turn back to him and say, I have the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You're right, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy in myself to approach God. I'm not worthy in myself to call myself a Christian. But in Jesus Christ, I am worthy because his righteousness has been given to me. You know, every month we take communion here. And in the book of 1 Corinthians later, Paul gives some instructions to the Corinthian church because some people were taking it in an unworthy manner. Rightfully, we take that warning seriously, and so we encourage people to approach it in a worthy manner. But we, what we are not saying is, you need to live up to a certain standard in order to be worthy of communion. What we're saying is, your heart posture toward the Lord needs to be one of humility and faith. Because based on our lives, none of us is worthy, ever. Even the best of us, we're not worthy. Jesus Christ is our righteousness, and His righteousness is perfect. Jesus is also our sanctification, which is our state of holiness, the state of being set apart from sin and set apart for the Lord. Christ's holiness is imputed to us just as his righteousness is, and so we are treated by the Father as if we were completely holy. We know we're not, but Christ is. And that again is why the book of Hebrews says you can come to the throne of grace boldly because you are qualified by the righteousness and holiness of Jesus Christ. You have, you possess true unblemished sanctification in Jesus Christ. That's called positional sanctification. In other words, your position in Christ is one of, uh, one of being perfectly holy. But also it is through Jesus that we are progressively sanctified over time and through our lives. Christ sent his spirit to live within us. Excuse me, to live within every one of us who trust in him. And his spirit is working in us to make us more like Jesus Christ. He's working to bring our practice of obedience more and more into line with our position of perfect holiness. It isn't a steady process. It has its ups and downs. So don't be discouraged if you feel like, man, I seem to be making progress. And then I seem to have fallen off the curve for a bit. Keep trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. Keep trusting in his perfect righteousness. That won't be completed in this life, only in the afterlife will we be sanctified totally in our practice. But both aspects of sanctification are standing as holy people of God, saints, and our practice are ours in union with Jesus of Nazareth. The last spiritual treasure he mentions in verse 30 is redemption. 
Redemption means deliverance from some evil by payment of a price. We needed to be redeemed. We were slaves of sin on our way to eternal punishment in hell. And Jesus graciously became that redeemer. He who existed from all eternity in equal glory with the Father and the Spirit willingly and lovingly chose to become a man, take on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And he went further than that. He lived among us for 30 years, living among rebellious, sinful humanity. And he went further than that. He allowed himself to be arrested, to be beaten, and to be mocked by sinful, evil men. And then he went further than that because he allowed himself to be nailed to a cross and killed. He allowed himself to be the target of the full wrath of God against sin. All the fury of God's holy and righteous anger was poured out on the spotless Lamb of God. Praise you, Jesus Christ, for that. Because that is our redemption. That is our purchase. That is our salvation. So the last reason that Paul gives for boasting in the Lord is that God did this so that we would boast in him. God is the one who is the source of our salvation and Christ became everything to us so that we would boast in him. God's purpose behind choosing foolish, weak, and despised people to be part of his church was to destroy any basis of human boasting, whereas God's purpose behind being the author of salvation and Christ being everything that we need is to cause us to boast in him. Jesus became wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that, for the purpose of, as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. As, as uh, John read uh, right before the sermon, Paul's referring to Jeremiah 24, excuse me, Jeremiah 9, 24, which says, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. Let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. Paul is saying, yes, I want you to boast. I want you to brag in the Lord. I want you to boast in the Lord and how awesome he is, the things that he has done in your life and in the lives of others and the things that he is doing worldwide. That God would take people regarded as nothing and work through them to show his glory and spread his kingdom. FBC supports many missionaries. Praise God for that. That is God's grace. That is God providing resources for us and the willingness and ability for us to support this people. That is not, man, FBC, we're just awesome people. We are, we are really a cut above other churches. That is us receiving the grace of God and that grace flowing out of us. The church has recommitted itself to prayer. Praise God for that. That's not because we're awesome. It's not because we are innately spiritual and strong. It is because we are recognizing by the grace of God that we must be completely dependent on him in all of life. So in every aspect of your life, when you boast, boast in the Lord. Boast in the Lord for saving unworthy sinners and giving us everything in Jesus. That's how I would sum up this passage. So now I'm going to invite the music team back up on the platform. And uh, here's what's going to happen. We're going to sing a song in response to this word of God that we've just heard. And then after that, we are going to witness a glorious baptism. Please stand with me as you're able.
We stand because we are the choir to the audience of one. Don't forget that. Be thou my vision, O Lord. 